All right, you'll want to get out your sermon outline and have that. Good to see everybody today. There's lots of faces I don't recognize. If I haven't met you or it's been a long time, I'd love to meet you after the service. If you would turn to John chapter 12. I'm going to read three verses, verses 31 through 33, and uh, sort of a special sermon for Palm Sunday. While you're turning there, uh, Kate, welcome home. So, Caleb and Sarah, congratulations. They're newly engaged. Very good. It's real now. So, pray for them. All right. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, our text for today. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel once again to learn more about your son Jesus and his cross. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your word here. We know a lot about the cross, we just don't find it very attractive. And so we thank you that this Palm Sunday, your word points us to your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to the glory of his cross. Focus us this day on your word and on your son and on his cross. Help us see Jesus. In his holy and precious name we pray, amen, amen. We are told in the scriptures to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's not a bad idea for Palm Sunday. Actually, it's not a bad idea for any Sunday. And yet it comes with a problem. You see, we want to look at Jesus' incarnation. After all, we love Christmas. Or at least I love Christmas. I hope you love Christmas too. And we want to look at Jesus' miracles, which reveal his glory. And we want to look at Jesus' messages, like the Sermon on the Mount, which reveal such great wisdom. And we want to look at his resurrection, where he's revealed as Lord and Savior. And of course, we want to look at his second coming, when we get to see the return of the king. But what's missing? His death. Why? Because I think... Deep down, we really don't want to look at his suffering. We don't want to see the nails being driven into his body. We don't want to look at his crucifixion. We understand it. We believe it. We just don't want to have to look at it. We want to see Jesus, not the cross. 
And today, the cross is one of the world's most recognizable symbols, the unmistakable sign of the Christian faith. I have one right here. This was my father's cross. He was a lay reader in the Episcopal Church and then later in the Anglican Church. And whenever he was scheduled to read the scriptures that day, he would wear this cross, and now it's mine. And if you stop and think about it, the cross is a rather strange symbol for the church to have chosen as its representative emblem. I mean, how would we react if we're going out with friends and they wanted to go to the jewelry store in order to buy a little gold electric chair? Say, what? You're going to wear that? There's something seriously wrong with you. And yet, around our necks, we're wearing a miniature instrument of execution, more barbaric than even that. Crucifixion is one of the most brutal forms of torture ever devised. It's a shameful death reserved for the worst criminals. The condemned man was stripped of his clothes and forced to, to carry his cross through the streets, taunted by onlookers, ridiculed by bystanders, shamed by his executioners. Theologians don't refer to the humiliation of Christ without good reason. And so as followers of Christ, should then we be ashamed? The Apostle Paul wasn't. To those sophisticated intellectuals of first century Corinth, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the legalists and moralists of the Galatian church, he said, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And as we were reminded last week, it's the focus of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christians don't love the cross because we have a morbid fascination with death. We love the cross because it means something. We love the cross because on it, Christ accomplished something. On the cross, Christ bore our sin, paid our penalty, endured our punishment, and secured our forgiveness. But we have to back up a little bit because the cross doesn't happen until Good Friday, as John mentioned earlier, and today is only Palm Sunday. So why are we talking about the cross in advance of the cross? Well, there's a reason, and it's not just because I'm the preacher and I felt like it. To understand why we're talking about the cross in advance of the cross, we first have to stop and ask a question about Palm Sunday. And the question about Palm Sunday is, what's being said here? What's being said here? Usually on Palm Sunday, we almost always go to John 12, and we look at how people waved palms as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And John 12, the triumphal entry has just happened. Jesus has entered Jerusalem to the great fanfare of the people. 
And in their minds, God's promised messianic blessing is playing out before their very eyes. Jesus, the Davidic king, miracle worker, has entered the royal city, no doubt, to claim the throne of David and lead the people of Israel to victory over Rome. And the sad reality is that Palm Sunday is every bit a tragedy as much as it is a triumph. Although the people of Israel cheer and shout messianic anthems, the reality is Jesus is not the king they want. And so the very moment when Jesus is arrested and stands helpless before the Jewish high priest Caiaphas and then the Roman governor Pilate, the people of Jerusalem turn on him and begin calling for his death. On Palm Sunday, the people of Israel, I want you to notice there's people of Israel and people of Jerusalem. There's some overlap, but it's not the same crowd on Palm Sunday as it is on Good Friday. There may be some people in both crowds. But on Palm Sunday, the people of Israel see Jesus as a successor to King David, and they're thrilled. But many of them actually go home. And by Good Friday, the people of Jerusalem see Jesus as a mere messianic pretender who should be put to death for causing so much trouble. As I said, usually we look at what Jesus did on this day, but however, we don't usually look at what Jesus said on this day, and that's what we're going to do today. Jesus proclaimed that his hour had come. Surely Jesus was referring to his entrance into the city and the beginning of his reign. But those who listened carefully to Jesus knew or soon realized that he is not about to meet the crowd's expectations. In fact, Jesus said his hour referred to something soon to come, that he would be glorified, that a time of judgment would come when he is lifted up in order to draw people to himself. At the end of John 12, we learn that the time of judgment mentioned by Jesus begins when his public ministry comes to a close and Jesus withdraws from the public eye. Having ended his public ministry, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. And when the people of Israel thought that the time of God's blessing, what they thought to be a time of God's blessing, was in fact a time of the beginning of God's judgment on Israel. When the messianic light departs, the darkness of spiritual judgment falls upon these people who are cheering for a Messiah in whom they do not believe and whose mission they do not understand. Previously in John, Jesus had only spoken of his hour when he would be glorified as a future event. Remarkably, now he tells a group of Gentiles that his hour has come. When he spoke these words about his hour having arrived, people assumed he was referring to his triumphal entrance into the city. But for the people uh, of Jerusalem who are standing around listening to him, Jesus sure didn't sound like a man who was about to lead Israel to victory over Rome. Jesus wasn't talking about Palm Sunday. 
Jesus is speaking of events to come, his death and resurrection, using the analogy of a grain of wheat which falls into the ground and then germinates. He's speaking of how he must die and be raised from the dead. And he speaks of those who follow him, how they must lose their lives in order to receive his eternal life. Now, the Apostle John uses this expression lifted up four times in his gospel. And each time he's talking about Jesus being lifted up in crucifixion. He's not stoned to death by the Jews, and he's not decapitated by the Romans. He's lifted up, a provision that God has made. God has sent his son to be lifted up on a wretched cross outside the city of Jerusalem on a disgusting hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when you realize that, it forces us to acknowledge the reality of the cross. The reality of the cross. Back to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice the repetition of the word now. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Jesus is saying there is something decisive happening right now. As I enter Jerusalem, something is going to happen that will change the world. It's for this event that he has come. That's why it's not the incarnation. That's the pivotal, pivotal point of Jesus' life and ministry. It's the cross. It's the cross and the events that follow burial, resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. There's something about those events for which he'd come. Now, I know I said when I sent out the email this week that we're taking a break uh, this week and next from our series on the most misused and misunderstood verses of the Bible, but this one easily fits. Because this verse is actually a case of uh, another misused scripture often cited in the context of leading worship in the church. Verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Those words come from the lips of Jesus, and on the surface, it seems that they would fit the agenda of an overzealous worship leader, seeking to lift up the name of Jesus in song as God's people gather to uh, engage in worship. Now, to be fair, lift up is a common biblical phrase used in the context of worship, both in the Old and New Testament. We see particularly in Isaiah and the Psalms. Numerous references are made to uh, what we lift up. Isaiah 24, we read, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy. In the Psalms, we see Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? In the New Testament, Paul's giving Timothy instructions about worship. He said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. The list could go on, but you get the idea. Figuratively speaking, believers are to lift up our hearts and minds, body and soul, in worship. But in every case, we're lifting up part of ourselves to worship him. But here in John, 
And in fact, every time Jesus uses this phrase about himself, he's referring to the cross. Being lifted up is Jesus' way of referring to his own death, his crucifixion. John makes that clear in the next verse. Verse 33, he says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Therefore, being lifted up is the equivalent of being hung on a cross. Now, remember, he's used these words before. He's used them in John 8 and then in John 3. In John 3, in his discussion with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus reminded him, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referring to the account in Numbers 21, where Israel spoke rebelliously against the Lord and incurred divine judgment. Poisonous snakes were sent to bite the Israelites, and many died. And then the people confessed their sins. They pleaded with Moses to intercede with the Lord on their behalf. Moses did so. And the Lord commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole so that whoever was bitten could then look at it and they would be healed and they would live. And the parallel Jesus is making is that in the same way the people were physically healed by looking at that which was lifted up, so it is that spiritual healing and eternal life will come to whoever looks in faith to the Son of Man who is lifted up on the cross. So the idea of being lifted up has everything to do with Christ's crucifixion. And it's through his atoning sacrifice on the cross that Jesus will draw people to himself, which will demonstrate the power of the cross. That's the second blank there, the power of the cross. Because it takes power to draw men and women to Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's go back to verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is this drawing of Jesus? It's the same work of God that Jesus referred to in John 6 when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him at the last day. This drawing of Jesus is the sovereign transforming work of God where he changes the heart of a person who is dead in trespasses and sins to make him desire to come to Christ. Let me give you an example. Maybe some of you remember, some of you surely don't. Uh, many years ago, January of 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 hit the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C. and crashed into the Potomac River. That January, the Potomac was very cold, very icy, very frozen. And there were a lot of people dying in the river that day because even though they got out of the plane, in the water they ended up dying from hypothermia. Their body temperature dropped too fast in the cold water. Over 70 people died that day. But there was one man, another passenger, who kept going back in and saved several people. I don't know if you remember that. Every time someone said, don't go back in there, 
Don't go back in there. This could be the last time. You could die. And he kept saying, I think I can save one more. And finally, he went back in and never came back out. Hypothermia set in for him, too, and he fell unconscious, and he drowned, and he died. His last act was passing the lifeline to another passenger, a woman. And she couldn't hold on to the rope in the freezing water. And another man jumped in and got her the rope, and she was saved. The rescuer who jumped into this 34-degree water was named Lenny Skutnik. And the passenger who kept going back to save others at the sacrifice of his own life was Arland Williams. And today, the official name of the 14th Street Bridge in D.C. is the Arland Williams Memorial Bridge. But I remember watching on TV as this unfolded live a helicopter pulling up his body by a rope out of the water. And as he was lifted up, there were hundreds of people gathered around. The bridge was uh, where there was safe. It was lined with people. There was rescue workers and fire trucks. The Coast Guard was there. There was hundreds and hundreds of people. And as he's lifted up by this helicopter out of the water, everybody stopped. And just looked at this man who had sacrificed himself and your heart was drawn to him. And at that moment, you you sort of realize why Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It's not that I'm going to do something special to draw you. It is the act of being lifted up that will draw you. When a Christian sees the beauty of what Christ did on the cross, you find you can never get over it. You are attracted to it. The transcendent splendor of his sacrifice draws you like a magnet. And Jesus is telling us, if you see the depth of your sin and the magnitude of the holiness of God and the power of his justice and the splendor of my sacrifice... What I've done for you, if you see that, if you begin to glory in that, you will find the fact that I died for you is the most important thing about you. You have to go to the cross. You're drawn to this sacrifice because this drawing of Jesus is the divine opening of the eyes of your heart, previously blind, so that the glory of the Son of Man on the cross becomes irresistible and like iron to a magnet. You're drawn to embrace Christ in faith and repentance. And the point of our passage is that this heart transformation, this opening of the eyes is in the cross. The cross doesn't just hold out this hypothetical offer of salvation to anyone who would come. The cross makes God's people come. It draws God's people to Jesus. The cross draws the elect irresistibly to the Savior because it has power to overcome the resistance in our hearts, overcome the resistance within the heart of God's people. 
That's how we have to understand the all of verse 32. Jesus is not saying he'll draw every single person to himself. If so, everybody would be saved. We know that's not the case. Jesus is saying on the cross, he will draw to himself all of God's people. To sum up, the death of Jesus glorifies the Son of Man because it reveals him for who he truly is. Jesus is revealed through the cross to be the Son of God who has the irresistible magnetism to draw God's people to himself for salvation. That's the glory of the Son of Man that we're to cherish uh, every week. And that's what Jesus is talking about. But where is he when he's talking about it? He's on his way to the cross. It's Palm Sunday. The cross hasn't happened yet. He's telling us in advance why this is so important. Of course, the fact that the Messiah had to die to accomplish his mission is precisely what created such a scandal in the mind of the people. They had no problem with a king who would lead them in triumph against their enemies. But they weren't looking for a redeemer who would die for the sins of the world. They no longer understood their need for such a Messiah. Jesus is bringing a radically different message. Essentially, he's telling them the power that I'm going to show you is a power that comes when I'm lifted up. The power comes in the death. When I am lifted up, my blood will silence the accusation of the ruler of this world. I will silence that accusation by fulfilling the righteous law of God. I will silence that accusation by taking on myself the condemnation against sin. And in silencing the accusation of guilt and shame and sin against my people, I will draw them to myself. I mean, the Pharisees were worried about Jesus' power. A little bit earlier in John 12, they said, we'll show you where his power is. Uh, We can't do anything about him. The whole world is following him. And Jesus says, that's not it. That's nothing. When I am lifted up, when the gospel goes forward, you will see the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So that every time a teenager in Africa walks away from spiritualism, and confesses Jesus as Lord. Every time that woman in Haiti walks away from Santeria and confesses Jesus as Lord. Every time that party official in China walks away from materialistic communism and confesses Jesus as Lord. And every time that self-righteous Southern Presbyterian walks away from his own righteousness and confesses Jesus as Lord. Every time that happens, rippling out through the centuries and all over the world, Jesus is demonstrating the power of the cross. And it's a power that's different from the power they want. And often it's a power that's different from the power we want. From that point on, the doctrine of the cross and our salvation through Christ's death would continue to prove foolishness to the Gentiles and a scandal to the Jews. The Apostle Paul put it, 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's a clear choice to be made here. The cross of Christ is either folly or weakness or it's the power and wisdom of God bringing salvation to those who are called. Which is it? How you answer those questions will help to determine your perspective on the cross. Verse 33, your perspective on the cross. Because John explains here, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Very, very clearly, John identifies the lifting up of Jesus with his death. In John's mind, the exaltation of Christ is not just something that happens after his death. No, his lifting up is his death itself. So what to the world was Jesus' greatest weakness is in reality his greatest strength. What appeared to be his greatest shame was in reality his supreme glory. What seemed to be the ultimate degradation was in reality Jesus' ultimate exaltation. And so for Jesus, the statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and the statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to die, are equivalent statements. It's precisely through his death that Jesus is glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come for him to die. The identification leads us to ask the question, how does the death of Jesus glorify Jesus as the Son of Man? And the answer is that the death of Jesus glorifies the Son of Man because through the cross, the reality of who Jesus is becomes evident. It is through the cross and never apart from it that we see the glory of Jesus revealed for us to worship and adore and cherish. Specifically, our passage teaches us two things about the glory of Jesus revealed on the cross. First, Jesus is the Son of God who loved the glory of his heavenly Father even more than his own life. And second, we can see the Son of Man is glorified through his death because the cross reveals Jesus as both judge and savior. Look again at our verses. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Judgment for this world, the casting out of Satan, the ruler of this world, and the salvation of all men drawn to Jesus. All of these are in the cross. And through all of them, the Son of Man is glorified. Both mercy and wrath are attributes of the divine character of God. Salvation and judgment are both works of God. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 11, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Nowhere is the kindness and severity of God, the mercy and wrath of God, his salvation and his judgment more evident than in the cross. The cross shows very clearly God's wrath against sin and his mercy to repentant sinners. The cross of Christ represents judgment for the world. The Greek word for judgment is crisis with a K. But it looks like crisis, sounds like crisis. 
And the cross of Christ is the supreme crisis for the world. That supreme moment of decision, it's at the cross, the true state of everyone's heart is laid bare. The cross demands a response from you and me and from everyone. Will we be drawn to the cross and cherish its mercy? Or will we bristle at the humility and repentance that's demanded by the cross and end up adding our voices to the crowd shouting, crucify him? According to Jesus, this world is under the dominion of Satan, the ruler of this world, and will inevitably condemn itself by its treatment of the Son of Man. The point's very simple. The cross of Christ is the judgment of the world, and Jesus, exalted and lifted up as the Son of Man on the cross, is the judge. He expressed it this way in John 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. A few verses later, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, God the Father, has given him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the first thing we have to see is the cross is judgment. For those who do not believe. But there's more there. Just as the cross represents uh, judgment of the world, it also represents the defeat of Satan. To the world, it looks just the opposite. It would appear to be the hour of Satan's greatest triumph in killing the Son of God. But in the mysterious wisdom of God, the reality is the opposite. Satan is defeated precisely in what appeared to be the moment of his greatest triumph. Note the future tense of the verb. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? There's a process. The evil one has not yet been totally vanquished. That awaits the second coming. But the decisive blow has been dealt. Satan is on the run, a defeated ruler, defeated by the cross, by the Son of Man, who was lifted up on the cross. Jesus Christ came to go to the cross. And so unless you understand the doctrine of the cross... Most of the rest of Christianity doesn't matter. The cross is absolutely necessary to our salvation. The cross attracts us like nothing else. The cross forces us to choose a perspective of judgment and wrath or mercy and salvation. Perhaps another way of understanding the cross comes by asking you, what do you glory in? What do you glory in? You glory in something. Uh, whatever you glory in is what drives your life. There's a great place in Galatians where the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Revised Standard Version translates that, far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard that before. But what Paul is saying is that if you glory in the cross, you have to recognize those other things that you glory in that you're not supposed to glory in anymore. Because you glory in things that you think will give you significance. Everybody glories in something. Everybody tries to get glory and significance from other things. You just have to figure out what your things are. 
For some of you, it's your career. For some of you, it's relationships. For some of you, it's achievement. Be honest, most of you moved here to Metro DC. Not because you really like to look at all those white marble monuments. People come here because they want to make it. It's not just an economic issue. It's essentially a self-image issue. It's a glory issue. I have to make it. I have to know I've done well here so I can accept myself, so I can love myself, so I know that I count. Paul says everybody's glorying in something. Everybody's trying to get their glory from something. God forbid that you should glory in anything except the cross. This week I read about a woman who'd become a Christian. Before she came to church, she lived a pretty miserable life. She was actually well-off and beautiful, lovely woman. But what had happened was from the time she was 14 years old, she had never not had a boyfriend. And she spent the next 15 years of her life always having to have a guy who she thought loved her. She always had to be on some guy's arm. And at a certain point, she realized this is just ruining her life. So she went to a counselor. Actually, she went to a lot of counselors. And every one of the counselors said, and they were right as far as they went, was some of the effect of you have a Cinderella complex. You've decided that the only way you'll ever feel worthwhile, you'll ever feel valuable, you'll ever feel substantial is if some man loves you. You've given the glory to the male gender. And now what they think of you is driving your life. That's true, by the way. There's a lot of women who let what men think about them drive their life. And it's usually pretty unhealthy. So she said, well, what do I do? And the counselor said, well, you have to go out and get a career so that you can see you're worthwhile. She says, well, how do I know that I'm worthwhile? How do I count? Well, go get a career. But she said to the counselors, if I go out and get a career, won't I be just as emotionally in bondage to my career as I was to men? They're like, oh, yeah, I see your point. <laughs> and again, she said, well... How do I know that I count? And she never got a good answer until she became a Christian. And then she realized one day, sitting in church, if Jesus Christ, if someone as glorious as that, someone who really counts, someone as significant as that, someone as a uh, uh, glorious person like that would actually do this for me, would love me so much that he would die for me, even death on a cross, now I know I matter. Now I know I matter to the only one who truly does matter. Now I know. I can have a career now, it's just icing on the cake. I can have a relationship now, it's just icing on the cake because finally I know I count. Finally. When she stopped glorying in anything but the cross, she got glory. When the Bible says you have to lose yourself to find yourself, what it's saying is only if you ascribe all glory to God and to what Christ did on the cross, 
Only if you say the most important thing about me is that I mattered so much to Jesus Christ that he would die for me. When you begin to let that drive your life, then you have all the sense of being worthwhile and valuable and substantial. And you suddenly realize, I matter that much to him. And the Bible says, yes, you do. The cross proves it. Take that to heart. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. First of all, we would confess to you we haven't let the cross shape us. Many of us give lip service to the fact that there is a cross, that Jesus died on the cross, but we haven't let the cross change us. We haven't let the cross attract us. We don't glory in the cross, and we certainly don't boast in the cross. Father, we pray you would enable us to see this. You enable us to see that we don't glory in the cross, but we tend to glory in other things. So our lives are driven to the point of spiritual bankruptcy. You ask us to glorify you because you know it's the only way we will finally find out that we count. But we'll finally get rid of the sensation of being weightless and inconsequential, of being forgettable, of being ignored. We haven't thought deeply enough about how much we matter to you, about how much we must be loved. As a result, some of us are always anxious, unhappy, desperate, always having our egos hurt. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for not being attracted by the cross for not being shaped by the sacrifice of the cross. Thank you that at Palm Sunday, your wisdom was revealed and it shows the wisdom of the world to be a pale and thin and weak thing. Most of all, help us to embrace that remarkable wisdom revealed to us at the cross. Lord, we thank you for that cross this Palm Sunday. In the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.